of the early church to fulfill and proclaim the great commission that Jesus had called them to do. So we're going to finish up our study of the early chapters of Acts this morning, from Acts chapter 4, finishing up the chapter together, starting at verse 23. Uh, remember, we were finishing up the study in the Gospel of John, and I just didn't want to leave you in the lurch and what happened to Peter and how the Lord used him and the other disciples, now apostles, which again um, just means the, the, the anointed ones, the sent ones, those that have been sent forth by God, the servants of God. And so these men are being used in a mighty way along with the other believers in the early church. And we have seen that in um, Peter and John and Peter's healing of the lame man, of course, to the power of Jesus Christ working through him and the subsequent um, results from the people and the astonishment and uh, Peter's preaching and many coming to know Christ from his, his second recorded sermon, more that came to know Christ than even the first, um, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel of Christ is moving throughout the city and the religious Leaders, of course, particularly those members of the Sanhedrin that were together, were not happy about that, at least bit, because they were losing their influence. That was their primary um, focus in all of this. So they brought them, uh, put them in detention, brought them before them the next day. Uh, but they really had very little to say to them because the lame man was with them and the obvious work of Christ, the powerful work of Christ was right there for all to see. They asked Peter and John, or they didn't ask, they, they commanded them not to speak of Jesus any longer. You're causing too much of a stir and you're messing with our authority and with our control and our power. So we demand that you desist and desist and uh, cease, cease and desist. You cease and desist talking about Jesus at all. And after Peter had given powerful witness, he leaves it up to them, remember? He says, you all have to make your own choice. We've given you the truth, but we've already made our choice. We're going to continue proclaiming Christ and being in obedience to him. I think Peter probably in the back of his mind was thinking, I'm done with this denying stuff. I've had enough of that. I'm going to go full fervor for God with the rest of my life and proclaim Jesus with all of my energy. At the same time, as they were released, there was nothing more that religious leaders could do at that time. They immediately, where would they go? What would they do? Well, when faced with this threat, that was a sobering reality. This, they probably began to realize, was the beginning of persecutions. And as Jesus surely had taught them, uh, they would not... Uh, avoid persecution. And so as this threat is laid before them, what do they do? They go to their friends, the rest of the church body, and they pray together. And we have a beautiful picture of the church praying and asking God for what they need to continue to proclaim Jesus boldly. We're going to see God's plan for powerful witness. They will refer to God's sovereign plan and their own role as the servants of God throughout this together. You're going to see God's sovereignty and their servanthood throughout this and boldness for witness. And so let's um, 
Let's start in verse 24 together. When they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Father, we as the church pray in essence the same thing today. That whatever we face, that you would just give us boldness and confidence for the task. It's your plan to use us, and you can use us powerfully. And so we as a local church body come together and ask for this this morning. Give us understanding and um, encouragement in the courage and confidence that you gave these early believers as they sought to. Just be obedient to the plan you had for them. Or help us to desire to want to be obedient even more so as we see how you worked in the, in the lives of these, uh, this first church family. And help us to be faithful till Jesus comes. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. God's plan for powerful witness is going to be proclaimed here as the church meets together. Um. They are faced with a blatant threat to their witness for Jesus Christ. So what do they first do? What's the first thing that they do, as we just read? They turn to prayer, not to the local news cycle, uh, not to politicians, you know, not, not to um, organizing um, different protests and things like that. But they go to the Lord in prayer. And then they leave their concerns in the hand of their sovereign God, who they know is in control, and they leave it with him. They know his plan for the witness of Jesus to the world cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. And so we're going to see God's sovereign plan, first of all, for bold ministry witness. And amazingly enough, this plan did include the opposition to his servant, to his son, Jesus Christ. This wasn't a tragic accident, what happened to Jesus, and the early church knew that. They knew that it was always a part of God's sovereign plan, that Jesus would suffer and die for our sins, and that he had provided a new life for them, and it was their duty now to proclaim him. And so these themes come together as Peter and John are released in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. Who are their friends? It's the church, the early believers. And reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, these very prominent leaders, Sanhedrin leaders, and they told them the threat. And what did they do? Verse 22, when they heard it, 
They lifted their voices together to God in prayer together. And then the prayer is recorded. So another threat by the Sanhedrin to discontinue their witness for Christ. And they turn to the church and they pray together, turning to God in prayer. Now, this should probably, I think this is best to look at, probably difficult, you would imagine, for these to all pray this in unison together. So this group isn't praying this long prayer in unison. It's obvious to me that someone's obviously leading them, like Peter or, or John, but all are in unison in uh, their assessment and their assent to what is being prayed. So really, in reality, just like we do here, you can say it can be written that the church, that these, this group all lifted their voices together, praying together. And here is a beautiful prayer. They're recognizing um, the sovereign control of God in the midst of these threats and opposition that they face. And they're going to, first of all, recognize God is creator. Everything that he created was a part of his plan, and they are a part of his plan. Again, let's read. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, immediately recognizing that God is in control. Sovereignty means that God has his hand over every aspect of everything that happens through world history, that nothing escapes his plan or his eye. And this early church had a full understanding of that. Sovereign Lord, you are the one that we bow before as we come before in prayer. We humble, we submit ourselves to you. All these themes of worship, they would have been, um, they would have been making the most of as they come before him in prayer. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea. And everything in them, they're acknowledging him as their creator. All of creation, as they think and meditate upon that, they know that he made it all. And that has implications then for the rest of their prayer. And so even as they acknowledge his sovereignty, they turn to yet another Psalm of David. You notice how many times early church references David's Psalms? Isn't that interesting? I think it is. Obviously, David's Psalms was well on their minds many times, and this one was Psalm, what we consider Psalm 2 today that Rob just read, and they make it clear who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, just a little uh, side note there, you know, this is where we find out that Psalm 2 was written by David, um, it's actually not titled that way in the book of Psalms. Uh, but there are, are many of these psalms that aren't necessarily attributed to David. Some are uh, that were written by David. And so the Bible makes clear at this point in the New Testament, this is definitely a psalm that David wrote. And they make clear that he was God's servant. He was power, a powerful king, a powerful adversary against their enemies, a powerful warrior, there was a lot of magnificent things about David, but what they describe here, and it's important for how they see themselves, David is just another servant. And specifically, the word here is bond servant. We've talked about this before. One that had um, submitted their rights to uh, the authority of another and that were being used and God would provide for them. This wasn't a cruel slavery where there was no provision um, and people suffered. No, this was a loving God that would, and we're going to see through uh, later in this chapter, 
would provide for them their needs and, and make sure that they had what they needed physically to continue on. A loving, sovereign Lord that they bow before and they acknowledge that David did the same thing. And then he was moved by the Holy Spirit, as all the authors of Scripture were. He said by the Holy Spirit, quoting the first couple verses that Rob read for us this morning, why did the Gentiles rage? The Gentiles is another word for the nations, for all of those nations that are not Jewish in nature. They were referred to many times as the Gentiles. And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, something that comes to mind even as we talk about these folks quoting scripture in their prayer. I remember as a teenager, our pastor had a special speaker, and this man's topic was prayer. And it was interesting. He, he was very dynamic, and he had a lot of humor in his message. And he brought out some points about prayer that I think were legitimate. Um, he pointed out some things that we have, bad habits in prayer that really need to be avoided. He talked, and, and he had some fun with it, and kind of, he talked about constantly repeating the Lord's name over and over again um, in, in a disrespectful way while we're pausing to think uh, about what the next words are that we need to say. Uh, I know we tend to do that. We can do that a lot if we're not careful. Um, he also talked about uh, pastors preaching a second message while they're praying instead of just realizing that they were addressing God the Father. And I suppose there was some merit to that, although I think there's there can be some aspects that are okay to do that. But then he mentioned also as well that sometimes people quote scripture back to God, and he kind of made it um, sound... Well, he was mocking really those people that would do that. And as a young, young person, it just, it was funny along with everything else. And so I thought, yeah, you know, they shouldn't do that. God knows his own scripture. But now that I've gotten older, I've thought back on that. You know, um, if the early church was quoting scripture while they were praying, then we ought to make light of that, right? That's legitimate. And praying even the psalm back to God, there is certainly, um, there is certainly, a rightness and a, and a right aspect to doing that. We should do that. It's not as if we're reminding God of his word. That's not why we do it. But we offer it up and worship to him, letting him know that, that um, his word is important to us. And we can pray these things that the spirit has given us. There's perfect legitimacy in using scripture in our prayers. And the early church lets us know that. And this psalm that they quote then, um, talks about the rage of Gentiles and pagan kings. And the Old Testament um, points to the enemy that would mock God and rage against his anointed one, the Messiah that would come. And the Jewish mindset at this time would have known this psalm well. And as they heard it and read it, they would think of the Gentiles that would rage in anger against God's chosen one and against his anointed one. When I think of that word rage, I think of another time where um, as a teenager, I had a friend who had a rough background, rough family um, that he grew up in and a lot of difficult things that, that he faced. And he lived in the same town that I did. So from time to time, I'd go to visit him. 
Um, and one afternoon in particular, I wanted to see how he was doing. So I went over to his house and his he was upstairs in his room and his mom answered the door and said, oh, I'll go get Todd. And she said, you can just wait over here in the living room. Said, okay. Well, so I sat down on, on the couch there. She went to get him. And I noticed, I didn't notice him when I first came to the door, but as I sat down and looked at the wall here, there was an older man. He was obviously inebriated, um, standing across the way and looking intently at me. And his, I knew this man, it was the uncle, I think his name was Uncle Billy, but that'll work for today. And he looked at me and all of a sudden, he just released this tirade of rage against me. And it just totally freaked me out, scared me to death. But this man was obviously totally had lost control of his senses, didn't even know where he was. And he literally was raging in anger and calling me names and all kinds of things. And my friend's mom came back down and she heard him and she said, she came in quickly and said, oh, Uncle Billy, just calm down. It's just Brock. You don't need to worry about him. And she kind of, you know, shuffled him off to another room and he disappeared. <laughs> well, that was that was very intimidating and scary for me to experience because it was raw rage that was coming from someone who was not in control of their senses. Folks, do you realize that the scriptures here are describing God's enemies as raging against him, against his son, his anointed one, in the same way? And that's significant because then how do the, the early church, who do they apply this Old Testament psalm to? Verse 27, they say, for truly in this city, they're saying, we're about to apply this to the modern day, and it is a true application. It is worthy of applying to uh, something that has just happened. In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant. They described David as a servant. Now they describe Jesus as the servant of God, the ultimate servant. He is fully holy. He is fully set apart in a way no one else could be. This was the servant, the Messiah that God had sent. And this city, they're raged together, gathered together against Jesus, whom you anointed. And then they make it very specific, both Herod. Remember, Herod was considered the king over the Jews at this point, whether they liked it or not. So he was the king that is referred to as a fulfillment of uh, Psalm 2. Verse 2, and Pontius Pilate, Pilate also obviously had a big part, whether he wanted to or not, in the condemnation of Jesus to crucifixion as he handed Jesus over to the angry mob. And so he would have been the fulfillment when Psalms 2, verse 2 says, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Here the church is applying that to Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles, and of course, that would have been a direct application that the Jewish people would have made. Certainly, yeah, those Gentiles, they had a part in this as well, but who else did they, they um, condemn? And the peoples of Israel, God's own people, fulfilled this psalm about the raging of God's enemies and the opposition against his son. It was his own people who were the enemies. That ought, to, that ought to be striking to us. The early church had a great understanding of what was going on here. And yet, these rulers, these uh, pagan peoples, and God's own people, 
all raged in anger against Jesus Christ. The worst crime, the worst sin ever to be committed was the crucifixion as a criminal of the holy servant of God. And yet, how do they describe this? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They acknowledged that the evil that was done to Jesus was sovereignly planned uh, before all time. In all eternity past, um, it was God's plan to have done what needed to be done so that we could have forgiveness and we could be God's children. And they recognized that even this most terrible thing, God had a purpose in. So folks, what does that mean for us? That whatever terrible thing you're facing in health-wise or in your family or finances or whatever, whatever's the worst thing that you have ever faced or that you're facing right now, folks, God has a plan for it. We can be confident in that. And so we need to, as his servants, and they make note of this now, submit to him, ask him, Lord, acknowledge, please, that, that this is going on, but also help us to get through this and to be obedient to you. And that's what they do in verse, uh, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Take note of them. It's not as if they think that God does not see what's going on. But they want, they want God to know, God, we are about ready to go through some very difficult things that these people are going to put us through. Please take note of that. They, they are just saying, Lord, we want to know that you know these things and that you're aware of them. Make that clear to us. But then also help us. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Their plan, just like Peter and John, was to continue to do what God had called them to do. Just help us to continue to do it, Lord, with all boldness. And that is a prayer, folks, that we can pray today. God's plan still today includes bold, powerful witness for him. Are we willing to pray in the midst of the opposition that we face? Lord, help us. Give us that boldness. Work your spirit in us. Interesting what they say in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it's as if they're saying, I don't believe they're praying here for the Lord to continue to do these miracles. They know that he's going to be doing them. They know he's going to continue at this time to heal people. And he's going to give them multiple signs of his power to let folks know that he is working through the church. And that they need to listen to these servants. They're saying, Lord, we know your powerful signs are going to continue in the midst of that. Keep us bold. Keep us faithful. And God gives them a mighty example of his power here in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer in an amazing way. Now, I'm going to make a side note here because um, I've, I've thought about this over the past couple of uh, messages, and I just want to be clear. I think you know this, but the church was not praying at that point for God to shake the building, just as um, the church 
as, as even though Peter prayed and asked the Lord to help heal this lame man, and he did so completely, um, it, it's not as if that is a temp template for us to follow today, is my point. That we should not have that expectation. Why would I say that? Well, first of all, I think in this instance, um, they are just praying for God to answer and give them boldness. And so he answers that prayer in a powerful way that signifies the presence of his spirit to accomplish gospel witness. They already had the presence of the spirit in their lives. And God is just reminding them through this very um, memorable shaking of this place that yes, the spirit's still with them and he will give them boldness and they will um, be able to speak um, the testimony of Jesus Christ effectively. But I don't think we should expect these signs today. Why is that? Well, remember at this time what God is doing. These are special miracles where Jesus is making it clear that something new is going on, that his church has the power um, to proclaim him, and that also the whole of the New Testament has not been yet written. None of the books have been written. All of the teachings of Jesus are still oral teachings that he has given them, that the Spirit is reminding them of. They're still proclaiming the gospel entirely from what? The Old Testament. So, folks, today as we have the New Testament, we have the whole teachings of Jesus. We know uh, what God's plan is in entirety as he's given it to us, all that he wants us to know. And so there's the need for these signs and these special things isn't necessary anymore. God still heals, but he heals through our prayers and through um, modern gifts that he's given us, like doctors and medicine and all of these things. They're still miraculous, but it's in a different manner. So we shouldn't expect these things today, but folks, at the same time, God can still give us that boldness to proclaim him just as he did back then. And that's the thing to focus on here, that he did answer their request and he did give them boldness. And they were able to proclaim Jesus in that town in the midst of threats from these powerful leaders. They were able to move on and do what he called them to do. And they did it together. They were in unison. They were all united in mission here, right? And so as they were united in mission, they were also united in helping each other. And that's what the rest of the passage has here as we finish up. We'll just look through this quickly. God's sovereign plan for powerful, effective witness and his plan included power and grace for service, which we all need. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They're functioning together, full unity, people knit. Heart and soul, as we say today, and look at their picture of selflessness. And no one that said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Here's a beautiful picture of selfishness as they refused to cling to their possessions. It's mine. It's mine. But they recognized the needs around with each other as they're carrying out Jesus' great commission, and they give freely to each other. In this regard, without hesitation, they provide for each other. Oh, you have a need. Oh, I'll gladly give this to you. Everything was in common. Again, is this a, a beautiful picture of what people think of as socialism today? No, that misses the whole point. This is not socialism. Remember, political socialism is actually 
um, the uh, a small group of powerful people trying to keep everybody else below them in the same equality of misery is usually what it ends up in. And you still have powerful people that then misuse all of those other people. The whole ideology of socialism breaks down quickly. Folks, what is this? This is a loving, believing community who are dedicated to meeting each other's needs. That's so much better than the socialism we think of today and so much more profound. And at the same time, as they're meeting each other's needs, God is answering their prayer, verse 33, with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony. They're proclaiming Christ. And Peter's telling people of what Jesus did in his life. And John's, the beloved disciples, explaining to people what Jesus did in his life. And the apostles are having this marvelous, wonderful testimony for Christ. And also, they were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that he was still living and he was working through them. And God also gave great grace was upon them all, the whole church. And God was giving these folks everything they needed for powerful, bold witness. What does that say to us today, folks? Myself included. There's no excuse. We have what we need. Grace, power. Ask for boldness. God will give it. And he will provide us even what we will say to proclaim that Jesus Christ lives today. And he will one day return. And that ought to be our passion. And at the same time, when we do that, do we need to doubt that God will take care of us? Well, here again is that picture. No, God took care of his people. Because verse 34 his plan also included provisions for his service. Yes, power and great grace for service to enable his people to have powerful, effective witness. But he didn't forget their needs. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of land, of houses, sold them and bought the proceeds of what were sold, what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, why did they do that? Well, they recognized the leadership that knew what the needs were. And so they brought the funds to the leaders willingly and said, however you want to use these for the needs of others, go ahead and do that without strings attached, right? And isn't it interesting at the same time that they were doing this, this also describes, wouldn't you agree, a type of verification process that the needs were true ones. They were saying to the apostles, we know that you know, we trust you that you know what the needs are. Uh, and, and that they're, they're significant, that they're true, real needs. And so here are the means to meet those needs. They just didn't give to anybody that just asked, but they had a verification process through the leadership to make sure that the right needs were being met. And I think that's practically important for the church to do as well, today as well. Um, be careful in our giving. Make sure that we verify the needs. And God will make that apparent. And then they distributed each as any had needs. Remember the gap between the rich and the poor was a huge chasm at this time. And so these believers then stood out in their care and concern for each other, that they were willing to do this. They were a testimony in their giving to each other. This was not usual for people at this time. You had the really, really rich and wealthy, and you had the really, really poor who didn't even know on a daily basis that they were going to have food or even drink. 
And the apostles say this, uh, and God through the works of his servants, and they describe themselves as servants. It's interesting too, as the early church describes David, and then Jesus himself as the ultimate servant, and then they describe themselves as servants. They're describing themselves as bond servants, ones that are under the authority of God, and yet they're asking God for the freedom to preach his word boldly. God doesn't, with his bond servants, doesn't muzzle them. He's not a cruel taskmaster, but he gives them the freedom to proclaim. So in that way, they're not slaves at all. They have the freedom to communicate as they, as they want to for Christ. There's one man in particular, though. They talk about the church in general and our meeting needs. And then one man to make it to, to help us to realize that this also goes to the individual. The church as a whole. But let's individually look at our lives and say, Lord, how can I help? Am I aware of the needs around me? Do I even know there are needy people? Other believers in this context, are there needy other believers? Am I even aware of them? I'm so self-focused. I come to church and I never notice anybody else in need. So the Bible gives us an example of a particular individual, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. This man was a distinguished Levite. Doesn't necessarily mean he probably wasn't part of the priesthood at this point. That had a different function. Um, the, the Levites were prominent. Many of them were wealthy. Not all of them were priests at this point because he was a native of Cyprus, which means that he had grown up apart from the land of Israel, and yet he was still a Jew. And that be beautiful description that the leadership gave him, son of encouragement. Here was a man that was recognized when he entered the room. This guy just is a breath of fresh air and encouragement to everybody. He was a wonderful man to have around. I think that Luke highlights him many times because Luke had a good friendship with him and just appreciated him so much. And through the uh, directing of the spirit, uh, so, or, or mentions him now. And he as an individual obviously had some wealth and he used that, sold a field that belonged to him. And he also brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. See as well, God is moving in servants beyond the walls of Jerusalem. We see that already early on in the history of the church. Well, what does that mean for us today? Because giving for others needs today, I think we would agree, can be a little more complicated than it was in the New Testament times. But yet, folks, again, like I just said, shouldn't we strive to still be aware of the needs of others? Take time to help. With and, and you know what? Our church does that well. We have a lot of people that help each other and are aware of each other's needs. And I'm grateful for that. But let's continue to do that. We have people that have health needs and have prayer needs, maybe some financial needs, whatever. Are we doing our part to help them instead of being indifferent or self-focused? So as we finish up, God is still in control. Does he have a plan for each of us? Yeah, it's for witness for Christ. If we ask him for that boldness, he will give it to us. And we may say, but Lord, um, I'm too busy and I have a lot of needs and I have a lot of distractions and things that keep me from serving you. And it's too hard. Well, just pray God will meet those needs as well. He'll take care of you. Don't be uh, distracted by that. Trust. God will meet your needs just as he did in the early church. 
and he will answer your prayer for boldness. Even the most timid person in this building today who says, oh, I can't talk to people. No, God, through the Holy Spirit, can give you all the boldness you need to share and proclaim Christ with others. Folks, really, there's no excuse, right? This passage kind of takes all that away. It says, be a faithful servant, proclaim Jesus with the time that you have, and do that well. Father, thank you for this reminder. Help us. I just say simply here in the end, as we finish this up, help us to reflect the early church, not in expecting these uh, amazing, miraculous healings in this manner or the shaking of the building or that kind of thing, or we have something even more amazing. That's the finished word of God, the, new, the, the full revelation that you have given to us. That is the ultimate miracle, and we're glad for that. But Lord, help us to expect that you will give us boldness and power and grace that we don't deserve. To accomplish what you have called us to do. It's scary. There are threats. There's opposition. Lord, there's people that hate us out there. We can see it in the news every day. We don't know what we may face personally here as a church and what threats we may face. But help us to trust in you, in your sovereignty, that you are in control. And in the hope that we have of Jesus' return. Help us to be faithful servants. Until that happens, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.